Book Six, Chapter Three, Part One, of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. I now turn to a very different talent, namely that which dispels the graver emotions of the judge by exciting his laughter, frequently diverts his attention from the facts of the case, and sometimes even refreshes him and revives him when he has begun to be bored or wearied by the case. How hard it is to attain success in this connection is shown by the cases of the two great masters of Greek and Roman oratory. For many think that Demosthenes was deficient in this faculty, and that Cicero used it without discrimination. Indeed, it is impossible to suppose that Demosthenes deliberately avoided all display of humor, since his few jests are so unworthy of his other excellences that they clearly show that he lacked the power, not merely that he disliked to use it. Cicero, on the other hand, was regarded as being unduly addicted to jests, not merely outside the courts, but in his actual speeches as well. Personally, though whether I am right in this view or have been led astray by an exaggerated admiration for the prince of orators i cannot say i regard him as being the possessor of a remarkable turn of wit for his daily speech was full of humour while in his disputes in court and in his examination of witnesses he produced more good jests than any other while the somewhat insipid jokes which he launches against varies are always attributed by him to others, and produced as evidence. Wherefore, the more vulgar they are, the more probable is it that they are not the invention of the orator, but were current as public property. I wish, however, that Tyro, or whoever it may have been, that published the three books of Cicero's jests, had restricted their number, and had shown more judgment in selecting than zeal in collecting them for he would then have been less exposed to the censure of his calumniators, although the latter will, in any case, as in regard to all the manifestations of his genius, find it easier to detect superfluities than deficiencies. The chief difficulty which confronts the orator in this connection lies in the fact that sayings designed to raise a laugh are generally untrue, and falsehood always involves a certain meanness, and are often deliberately distorted, and further, never complimentary, while the judgments formed by the audience on such jests will necessarily vary, since the effect of a jest depends not on the reason, but on an emotion which it is difficult, if not impossible, to describe. For I do not think that anybody can give an adequate explanation though many have attempted to do so, of the cause of laughter, which is excited not merely by words or deeds, but sometimes even by touch. Moreover, there is great variety in the things which raise a laugh, since we laugh not merely at those words or actions which are smart or witty, but also at those which reveal folly, anger, or fear. Consequently, the cause of laughter is uncertain, since laughter is never far removed from derision. For, as Cicero says, laughter has its basis in some kind or other of deformity or ugliness, and whereas, when we point to such a blemish in others, the result is known as wit, 
it is called folly when the same jest is turned against ourselves. Now, though laughter may be regarded as a trivial matter, and an emotion frequently awakened by buffoons, actors, or fools, it has a certain imperious force of its own, which it is very hard to resist. It often breaks out against our will, and extorts confession of its power, not merely from our face and voice, but convulses the whole body as well. Again, it frequently turns the scale, in matters of great importance, as I have already observed, for instance, it often dispels hatred or anger. A proof of this is given by the story of the young man of Tarentum, who had made a number of scurrilous criticisms of Pyrrhus over the dinner-table. They were called upon to answer for their statements, and, since the charge was one that admitted neither of denial nor of excuse, they succeeded in escaping, thanks to a happy jest which made the king laugh. For one of the accused said, Yes, and if the bottle hadn't been empty, we should have killed you, a jest which succeeded in dissipating the animosity which the charge had aroused. Still, whatever the essence of humor may be, and although I would not venture to assert that it is altogether independent of art, for it involves a certain power of observation, and rules for its employment have been laid down by writers both of Greece and Rome, I will insist on this much, that it depends mainly on nature and opportunity. The influence of nature consists not merely in the fact that one man is quicker or cleverer than another in the invention of jests, for such a power can be increased by teaching, but also in the possession of some peculiar charm of look or manner, the effect of which is such that the same remarks would be less entertaining if uttered by another. Opportunity, on the other hand, is dependent on circumstances, and is of such importance that, with its assistance, not merely the unlearned, but even mere country bumpkins are capable of producing effective witticisms, while much again may depend on some previous remark made by another which will provide opportunity for repartee. For wit also appears to greater advantage in reply than in attack we are also confronted by the additional difficulty that there are no specific exercises for the development of humor, nor professors to teach it. Consequently, while convivial gatherings and conversation give rise to frequent displays of wit, since daily practice develops the faculty, oratorical wit is rare, for it has no fixed rules to guide it but must adapt itself to the ways of the world. There has, however, never been anything to prevent the composition of themes such as will afford scope for humor, so that our controversial declamations may have an admixture of jests, while special topics may be set which will give the young student practice in the play of wit. Nay, even those pleasantries in which we indulge on certain occasions of festive license, and to which we give the name of mots, as indeed they are, if only a little more good sense were employed in their invention, and they were seasoned by a slight admixture of seriousness, might afford a most useful training. As it is, they serve merely to divert the young and merrymakers. There are various names by which we describe wit but we have only to consider them separately 
to perceive their specific meaning. First, there is urbanitas, which, I observe, denotes language with a smack of the city in its words, accent, and idiom, and further suggests a certain tincture of learning, derived from associating with well-educated men. In a word, it represents the opposite of rusticity. The meaning of venustus is obvious. It means that which is said with grace and charm. Salsus is, as a rule, applied only to what is laughable. But this is not its natural application, although whatever is laughable should have the salt of wit in it. For Cicero, when he says that whatever has the salt of wit is Attic, does not say this because persons of the Attic school are specially given to laughter. And again, when Catullus says, in all her body not a grain of salt, he does not mean that there is nothing in her body to give cause for laughter. When, therefore, we speak of the salt of wit, we refer to wit about which there is nothing insipid, wit, that is to say, which serves as a simple seasoning of language, a condiment which is silently appreciated by our judgment, as food is appreciated by the palate, with the result that it stimulates our taste and saves a speech from becoming tedious. But just as salt, if sprinkled freely over food, gives a special relish of its own, so long as it is not used to excess, so in the case of those who have the salt of wit, there is something about their language which arouses in us a thirst to hear. Again, I do not regard the epithet facetus as applicable solely to that which raises a laugh. If that were so, Horace would never have said that nature had granted Virgil the gift of being facetus in song. I think that the term is rather applied to a certain grace and polished elegance. This is the meaning which it bears in Cicero's letters, where he quotes the words of Brutus. In truth, her feet are graceful and soft as she goes delicately on her way. This meaning suits the passage in Horace, to which I have already made reference. To Virgil gave a soft and graceful wit. Iocus is usually taken to mean the opposite of seriousness. This view is, however, somewhat too narrow. For to feign, to terrify, or to promise are all, at times, forms of jesting. Dicacitas is no doubt derived from dico, and is therefore common to all forms of wit, but is specially applied to the language of banter, which is a humorous form of attack. Therefore, while the critics allow that Demosthenes was urbanus, they deny that he was dicax. The essence, however, of the subject which we are now discussing is the excitement of laughter, and consequently the whole of this topic is entitled perigeloiu by the Greeks. It has the same primary division as other departments of oratory, that is to say, it is concerned with things and words. The application of humor to oratory may be divided into three heads, for there are three things out of which we may seek to raise a laugh, to wit, others, ourselves, or things intermediate. In the first case, we either reprove or refute or make light of or retort or deride the arguments of others. In the second, we speak of things which concern ourselves in a humorous manner, and, to quote the words of Cicero, say things which have a suggestion of absurdity. 
for there are certain sayings which are regarded as folly if they slip from us unawares, but as witty if uttered ironically. The third kind consists, as Cicero also tells us, in cheating expectations, in taking words in a different sense from what was intended, and in other things which affect neither party to the suit, and which I have, therefore, styled intermediate. Further, things designed to raise a laugh may either be said or done. In the latter case, laughter is sometimes caused by an act possessing a certain amount of seriousness as well, as in the case of Marcus Silius the Praetor, who, when the consul Aesoricus broke his curl chair, had another put in its place, the seat of which was made of leather thongs, by way of allusion to the story that the consul had once been scourged by his father. Sometimes, again, it is aroused by an act which passes the grounds of decency, as in the case of Silius's box, a jest which was not fit for an orator or any respectable man to make. On the other hand, the joke may lie in some remark about a ridiculous look or gesture. Such jests are very attractive, more especially when delivered with every appearance of seriousness, for there are no jests so insipid as those which parade the fact that they are intended to be witty. Still, although the gravity with which a jest is uttered increases its attraction, and the mere fact that the speaker does not laugh himself makes his words laughable. There is also such a thing as a humorous look, manner, or gesture, provided always that they observe the happy mean. Further, a jest will either be free and lively, like the majority of those uttered by Olus Galba, or abusive, like those with which Junius Bassus recently made us familiar, or bitter, like those of Cassius Severus, or gentle, like those of Domitius Offer. Much depends on the occasion on which a jest is uttered. For, in social gatherings and the intercourse of every day, a certain freedom is not unseemly in persons of humble rank, while liveliness is becoming to all. Our jests should never be designed to wound, and we should never make it our ideal at once lose a friend sooner than lose a jest. Where the battles of the courts are concerned, I am always better pleased when it is possible to indulge in gentle raillery, although it is, of course, permissible to be abusive or bitter in the words we use against our opponents, just as it is permissible to accuse them openly of a crime and to demand the last penalty of the law. But in the courts, as elsewhere, it is regarded as inhuman to hit a man when he's down, either because he is the innocent victim of misfortune, or because such attacks may recoil on those who make them. Consequently, the first points to be taken into consideration are who the speaker is, what is the nature of the case, who is the judge, who is the victim, and what is the character of the remarks that are made. It is most unbecoming for the orator to distort his features or use uncouth gestures, tricks that arouse such merriment in farce. No less unbecoming are ribald jests, and such as are employed upon the stage. As for the obscenity, it should not merely be banished from his language, but should not even be suggested. For even if our opponent has rendered himself liable to such a charge, our denunciation should not take the form of a jest. Further, although I want my orator to speak with wit, 
he must not give the impression of striving after it. Consequently, he must not display his wit on every possible occasion, but must sacrifice a jest sooner than sacrifice his dignity. Again, no one will endure an accuser who employs jests to season a really horrible case, nor an advocate for the defense who makes merry over one that calls for pity. Moreover, there is a type of judge whose temperament is too serious to allow him to tolerate laughter. It may also happen that a jest directed against an opponent may apply to the judge or to our own client, although there are some orators who do not refrain even from jests that may recoil upon themselves. This was the case with Sulpicius Longus, who despite the fact that he was himself surpassingly hideous, asserted of a man against whom he was appearing in a case involving his status as a freeman, that even his face was the face of a slave. To this, the mischief's offer replied, Is it your profound conviction, Longus, that an ugly man must be a slave? Insolence and arrogance are likewise to be avoided, nor must our jests seem unsuitable to the time or place, or give the appearance of studied premeditation, or smell of the lamp, while those directed against the unfortunate are, as I have already said, inhuman. Again, some advocates are men of such established authority and such known respectability that any insolence shown them would only hurt the assailant. As regards the way in which we should deal with friends, I have already given instructions. It is the duty, not merely of an orator, but of any reasonable human being, when attacking one whom it is dangerous to offend, to take care that his remarks do not end in exciting serious enmity or the necessity for a groveling apology. Sarcasm that applies to a number of persons is injudicious. I refer to cases where it is directed against whole nations or classes of society, or against rank and pursuits which are common to many. A good man will see that everything he says is consistent with his dignity and the respectability of his character, for we pay too dear for the laugh we raise if it is at the cost of our own integrity. It is, however, a difficult task to indicate the sources from which laughter may be legitimately derived or the topics where it may be naturally employed. To attempt to deal exhaustively with the subject would be an interminable task and a waste of labor. For the topics suitable to jests are no less numerous than those from which we may derive reflections, as they are called, and are, moreover, identical with the latter. The powers of invention and expression come into play no less where jests are concerned, while, as regards expression, its force will depend in part on the choice of words, in part on the figures employed. Laughter, then, will be derived either from the physical appearance of our opponent or from his character as revealed in his words and actions, or from external sources, for all forms of raillery come under one or other of these heads. If the raillery is serious, we style it as severe. If, on the other hand, it is of a lighter character, we regard it as humorous. These themes for jest may be pointed out to the eye or described in words, or indicated by some mote. It is only on rare occasions that it is possible to make them visible to the eye, as Gaius Julius did when Helvius Mancia kept clamoring against him. I will show you what you're like, he cried, and then, 
as Mencia persisted in asking him to do so, pointed with his finger at the picture of a goal painted on a cimbric shield, a figure to which Mencia bore a striking resemblance. There were shops round the forum, and the shield had been hung up over one of them by way of a sign. The narration of a humorous story may often be used with clever effect, and is a device eminently becoming to an orator. Good examples are the story told of Sepasius and Fabricius, which Cicero tells in the Procluentio, or the story told by Celius of the dispute between Decimus Lelius and his colleague, when they were both in a hurry to reach their province first. But in all such cases, the whole narrative must possess elegance and charm, while the orator's own contribution to the story should be the most humorous element. Take, for instance, the way in which Cicero gives a special relish to the flight of Fabricius. And so, just at the moment when he thought his speech was showing him at his best, and he had uttered the following solemn words, words designed to prove a master stroke of art, look at the fortunes of mankind, gentlemen, look at the aged form of Gaius Fabricius. Just at that very moment, I say, when he had repeated the word look several times by way of making his words all the more impressive, he looked himself and found that Fabricius had slunk out of court with his head hanging down. I will not quote the rest of the passage, for it is well known, but he developed the theme still further, although the plain facts amount simply to this, that Fabricius had left the court. The whole of the story told by Silius is full of wit and invention, but the gem of the passage is its conclusion. He followed him, but now he crossed the straits, whether it was in a ship or a fisherman's boat, no one knew. But the Sicilians, being of a lively turn of wit, said that he rode on a dolphin and effected his crossing like a second Arian. Cicero thinks that humor belongs to narrative and wit to sallies against the speaker's antagonist. The Mish's offer showed remarkable finish in this department, for, while narratives of the kind I have described are frequent in his speeches, several books have been published of his witticisms as well. This latter form of wit lies not merely in sallies and brief displays of wit, but may be displayed at greater length. Witness the story told by Cicero in the second book of his De Oratore, in which Lucius Crassus dealt with Brutus, against whom he was appearing in court. Brutus was prosecuting Gnaeus Plancus, and had produced two readers, to show that Lucius Crassus, who was counsel for the defense, in the speech which he delivered on the subject of the colony of Narbo, had advocated measures contrary to those which he recommended in speaking of the Servilian law. Crassus, in reply, called for three readers, and gave them the dialogues of Brutus's father to read out. One of these dialogues was represented as taking place on his estate at Privernum, the second on his estate at Alba, and the third on his estate at Tibur. Crassus then asked where these estates were. Now, Brutus had sold them all, and in those days it was considered somewhat discreditable to sell one's paternal acres. Similar attractive effects of narrative may be produced by the narration of fables, or at times even of historical anecdotes. On the other hand, brevity in wit gives greater point and speed. It may be employed in two ways, according as we are the aggressors or are replying to our opponents. The method, however, in both cases, 
is to some extent the same. For there is nothing that can be said in attack that cannot be used in repost. But there are certain points which are peculiar to reply. For remarks designed for attack are usually brought ready-made into court after long thought at home, whereas those made in reply are usually improvised during a dispute or the cross-examination of witnesses. But though there are many topics on which we may draw for our jests, I must repeat that not all these topics are becoming to orators. Above all, double entendres and obscenity, such as is dear to the Italian farce, are to be avoided, as also are those coarse jibes so common on the lips of the rabble, where the ambiguity of words is turned to the service of abuse. I cannot even approve of a similar form of jest that sometimes slipped out even from Cicero, though not when he was pleading in the courts. For example, once when a candidate, alleged to be the son of a cook, solicited someone else's vote in his presence, he said, Ego quoque tibi fawebo. I say words capable of two different meanings, but because such jests are rarely effective, unless they are helped out by actual facts as well as similarity of sound. For example, I regard the jest which Cicero leveled against that same Isauricus, whom I mentioned above, as being little less than sheer buffoonery. I wonder, he said, why your father, the steadiest of men, left behind him such a stripy gentleman as yourself. On the other hand, the following instance of the same type of wit is quite admirable. When Milo's accuser, by way of proving that he had lain in wait for Claudius, alleged that he had put up at Bowille before the ninth hour in order to wait until Claudius left his villa and kept repeating the question, When was Claudius killed? Cicero replied, Late, a retort which in itself justifies us in refusing to exclude this type of wit altogether. Sometimes, too, the same word may be used not merely in several senses, but in absolutely opposite senses. For example, Nero said of a dishonest slave, No one was more trusted in my house. There was nothing closed or sealed to him. Such ambiguity may even go so far as to present all the appearance of a riddle, Witness the jest that Cicero made at the expense of Platorius, the accuser of Phanteus. His mother, he said, kept a school while she lived, and masters after she was dead. The explanation is that in her lifetime women of infamous character used to frequent her house, while after her death her property was sold. I may note, however, that ludus is used metaphorically in the sense of school, while magistri is used ambiguously. A similar form of jest may be made by use of the thing known as metalepsis, as when Fabius Maximus complained of the meagerness of the gifts made by Augustus to his friends, and said that his congiaria were heminaria, for congiarium implies at once liberality in a particular measure and Fabius put a slight on the liberality of Augustus by reference to the measure. This form of jest is as poor as is the invention of punning names by the addition, subtraction, or change of letters. I find, for instance, a case where a certain Asiscalus was called Pasiscalus because of some compact which he had made, 
while one Placidus was nicknamed Acidus because of his sour temper, and one Tullius was dubbed Tullius because he was a thief. Such puns are more successful with things than with names. It was, for example, a neat hit of offers when he said that Manlius Sura, who kept rushing to and fro while he was pleading, waving his hands, letting his toga fall and replacing it, was not merely pleading, but giving himself a lot of needless trouble. For there is a spice of wit about the word satagere in itself, even if there were no resemblance to any other word. Similar jests may be produced by the addition or removal of the aspirate, or by splitting up a word or joining it to another. The effect is generally poor, but the practice is occasionally permissible. Jests drawn from names are of the same type. Cicero introduces a number of such jests against Verres, but always as quotations from others. On one occasion he says that he would sweep everything away, for his name was Verres. On another, that he had given more trouble to Hercules, whose temple he had pillaged, than was given by the Arimanthine boar. Or another, that he was a bad priest, who had left so worthless a pig behind him. For Verres' predecessor was named Sacerdos. Sometimes, however, a lucky chance may give us an opportunity of employing such jests with effect, as, for instance, when Cicero in the Procaecina says of the witness Sextus Claudius Formio, he was not less black or less bold than the Formio of Terence. End of chapter 3, part 1